Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. We are very glad that you have joined us this morning. We are going to be talking about the Gulf War. Sometimes I think that this has been the forgotten war in terms of those who have served. And now we really just don't hear that much about them. And I know that um, we, I've got Tassambra Kimes with me this morning. Good morning, Tassambra. And we were talking earlier that this is one of those wars that people know about, um, but it just doesn't capture the imagination the way that it did when it first occurred. And then obviously after all these long, long years of war, finding and talking to what I'll call the lost men and women of these conflicts, it, it's very interesting to me. It literally took four months to find our guests today to come and talk about this war, which I think is really fascinating because that has never really happened before. Generally speaking, you can go out and find people um, who are able to and willing to talk about the conflicts. And many of them almost have put this behind them. And I think one of the things that you and I talked about is that these were short wars. This was the first war that came into civilians' living rooms on television. And there was a fascination, a morbid fascination, really, with looking at um, this almost what they sometimes call a video war. Do you recall it? It's, it's, it's actually, like I shared with you, it's the first war for me. My, my dad served. And so mm-hmm. this is the first war that I realized, oh, my God, like my father, you know, he could actually die. Like, this is what real soldiers do. You know, this is what it's about. And, you know, I was, I was in eighth grade at the time. And I can remember the day that my dad deployed, you know, going to school. And it was during a break. And it was the first time that a group of friends, you know, we're all military brats. So we're all together. And, but it's the first time we actually talked about, like, our fears and, like, oh, my God, this is really happening. And, you know, and I cried about it. And I was scared for my dad. And, and that's the first and only war that really I was, you know, it just kind of hit me. And I didn't, you know, I, I could actually understand what was going on, but it's, it's strange that you said that no one's really talking about it because, I mean, I never asked my dad about it, you know, even after that day, I had mentioned it to my brothers or sisters, you know, I, I, didn't, I never told him that I cried too, because that, that would have been a bad thing. But, you know, I just, you know, I just remember, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, like this is, this is serious and this is, this is scary, you know, and, and what's going on and. It really you know, is. I still and, haven't and asked my dad about it, but I maybe need to. after this program, you you can do yeah. that. It's <laughs> funny. I had that so. experience with my uncle going off to Vietnam. I remember it like it was yesterday, and I think that's why the Gulf War was shocking to me to be able to watch it on television. I'd heard so much about 
this jungle war and Agent Orange and, and the terrible conflicts we had in Vietnam. But this war was so different. And then afterward, when people came back with Gulf War illness, which even after 10 years of congressional studies and medical reviews, etc., it still has so many unanswered questions. It's very interesting. And I think one of the things that we'll talk about today with our guests is that the Gulf War illness, Gulf War syndrome, you may have heard it called at times, many people who have these symptoms, including those generations downstream from there, never even deployed. And so as a group, as I mentioned, finding guests are difficult to find. It's a less cohesive group. So there's some Facebook closed groups, some websites, but quite small, sparse, um, a paucity of general VSO support and interest. And I think that what we will talk about today with our two guests will open your eyes to the fact that different conflicts bring different experiences um, and different Mm -hmm. lingering effects. And so for many, the Gulf War carries on to future generations and we will we will have some interesting discussion today. So I would like to introduce our two guests today. We have Dr. Dave Hatfield, who is a Gulf War veteran and an advocate and a researcher at this point, and veteran Les Davis, both who served and both who have some very interesting experiences and stories for us. Uh, Dave and Les, welcome to Military Network Radio. Yes, good morning. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure, believe me. Uh, we had many discussions prior to coming together this morning. And Dave, let's start with you. Just a really brief background and why this topic is very important to share with our listeners. Well, excuse me. I may be a little uh, different than many of the veterans in terms of uh, I didn't get sick during the war and uh in fact, didn't get sick for quite some time after the war. And uh, when I first heard about Gulf War illness and everybody coming back with these uh, problems, uh, I thought they were just uh, whiners and, and uh, malingerers and just uh, complaining about nothing. And uh, I was perfectly healthy. I retired in 1994 and was fine. And I didn't get... Uh, the first sign that I was ill until 19 or until, yeah, it was 1999. Hmm. And uh, it uh, was about 2000 when I came back from Germany from an assignment as a civilian DOD employee that uh, I came back to Maryland and uh, the doctors uh, here started examining me and doing some tests and uh, they believed I had uh, MS, multiple sclerosis, mm-hmm. and uh, wow. I went through testing until about 2008, I guess, that uh, they thought I had MS, and one of my neurologists still thinks I have MS, and uh, uh, it was about 2008 when they finally decided it wasn't MS. In fact, the doctor at the VA here in Baltimore uh, is the doctor that finally said, well, I'm, I'm positive you don't have MS. And I said, well, then what is it? And that's when they got to the point where they said, well, we don't know what it is. Which and, is very uh, common among yeah. this group of veterans. Um, yeah. Les, how about your story? 
Well, uh, yeah, uh, I retired back in 2002, and, and like Dave, I didn't I didn't really pay much attention to any ailments or uh, much of anything. I just went from retirement to work, uh, and then I started working with with veterans, and I started mostly it was the current current Gulf War veterans. I started working with more and more with the, with the job I had uh, in, with student veterans, and I mm-hmm. uh, really started seeing some of their ailments, a lot of PTSD, a lot of physical, uh, you know, due to uh, amputees. <clears throat> and then, uh, then we started working with some older vets. And then I, I, it was, it was, wow, this is, this is, um, this is real. This just isn't me who is, who is maybe having some memory issues or, or there's, there's a lot of us out there. So, you know, I, I knew it was there. I had a friend who had a, who had a child, uh, with the, which we, I think we can get to later. And even my own son that was born with an ailment, I, there, it was always there that I thought there were issues with, uh, you know, Gulf War illness, Gulf War syndrome, uh, whatever the label is today. I knew it was there, but it was, it wasn't something every day that, that I seen, but it, it, there's some, there are some people out there that need it, need some real, some assistance and we need to, as a society, as a as the government needs to own it, they need to start caring for the vets a lot better than where we're at today. You know, what I are, think it what is are like a, some of the symptoms. Right. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm. Let's just take a step back and and talk about it. What is Gulf War illness, and who has it, and what are the symptoms? Because many people may not be tying whatever conditions they may have to their service. Correct. Well, it's it's uh, a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, it 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 uh, is really a range of different signs and symptoms. Uh, it's not a specific disease, and there's not a, a set uh, group of criteria to diagnose it with. Um, the the law and regulations for the VA define it as a, a, either an uh, undiagnosed uh, disease or a set of symptoms that uh, include things like IBS, gastrointestinal problems like IBS, mm-hmm. uh, 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 chronic fatigue syndrome, or um, what's the other one, Les? I've totally lost it now. Well, I know, I know for me, it, uh, it affected some of my memory, uh, some of my uh, short-term uh, memory. And, I, and I've talked to a bunch of people where it affected some of their memory. Uh, so I, like Dave said, it's not one thing or it's another. And, you know, the causes of it still haven't even hit that. Um, I know for me, just here, just, just, you know, my experience, um, and it, this is just vivid. I can picture it today. Uh, as, as it happened, when I came back, I remember getting my first real hot shower, and 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 I remember just looking down at the white bathtub. I was in, I was stationed in Germany, and I came back out of the house and got my first hot shower uh, for a very long time. I remember this yellow stuff just started pouring out of my skin, mm-hmm. and I could see it hitting the hitting the white bathtub, and, and I was just it, it it you know was it the oil coming out of my skin from the all the oil well fires was it uh, what or what was it i just kind of thought it was well my skin just absorbed a lot of oil that's you know because of the all the the 
I don't know, thousands of oils, oil well fires that were going on and kind of blew it off. But if you, you know, what kind of long-term damage does that do to somebody or somebody that has a low immune system or, I mean, that, that is, that, and then top of that, then, you know, the experimental pills. I mean, it, it is just on and on and on that, that you can, that you can go and, and put all this together. But for me, it, it, it was seeing that uh, kind of the long-term, short-term memory. Um, and I don't know, David, you've done a lot further study out with this, but it was, to me, that was my, my uh, memory of, of how it affected me and what I seen. I think that's perfect. And we will come back after a break and, and talk further about that. You're listening to Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back. Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. The League of Women Voters reminds you that on Election Day, we are all equal. Please join your friends and neighbors by registering to vote and going to the polls November 8th. Visit www.vote411.org to find out who will be on your ballot and how the voting process works in your community. This election is about our future, and we all need to weigh in. Get a kick out of the warning labels companies attach to prevent lawsuits from the hooky crookie of this world. A warning label on a dishwasher cautioned not to put any person in the unit. Speaking of dishwashers, one product warning on a television remote control read, not dishwasher safe. That's too bad because we know how dirty the remote control gets. In fact, we press the buttons even harder when we know the battery is dead. What are we, part of the radiculati? A warning on a baby stroller read, remove child before folding. Here's one for the blunderbusses and poppin' jays among us. A label on a letter opener read... Safety goggles recommended. Call me snarky, but any society that needs this many disclaimers has too many lawyers, pedophagers, and snollygosters. It's Marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with Dave Hatfield and Les Davis, both veterans of the Gulf War. And prior to the break, we were talking about Gulf War illness and who has it. And I think we're able to paint a picture that it's a set of uh, symptoms that don't seem to be connected, but that do cause differences in quality of life, questionable um, symptomatology, and, and some really baffling uh, combination of symptoms for people. As Dave mentioned, he was told he thought he had MS for such a long time. And when people can't answer medical questions, that's particularly unsettling. And I know, Ty, you had a question about the fact. Uh, well, I'll let you ask your question. Yeah, so if someone didn't deploy, you know, are thought to be at fault here? Well, the there's not been a lot of study on the uh, non-deployed, and in fact, that's one of the 
things that the, the non-deployed folks who are ill and have many of the same symptoms as the deployed soldiers have uh, are quite upset about, uh, especially with the VA, that the VA hasn't really studied the non-deployed uh, military folks at all. Uh, but uh, the kind of thought or the thinking is among the, the non-deployed is that they had all the same vaccinations. Many of them had the same vaccinations because they were preparing to deploy uh, as the rest of us had. Uh, they okay. were um, uh, uh, getting ready to go, so they had all of those same kind of medical preparations that the rest of us had. Uh, many of them um, were working on the equipment when it came back because they were uh, preparing the equipment before it got ready to go, so they knew the equipment and those right. kind of things. So when it came back, they were uh, handling the equipment that came back, and so they were exposed to a lot of the... Uh, although the equipment was supposedly cleaned before it left, uh, it still had a lot of the sand and the other kinds of uh, uh, stuff that was in it uh, when it was shipped, and so uh, they got exposed to those kinds of things. And so there was a lot of thought that both of those uh, things might have still had... Uh, uh, something to do with it. And so the sand and that kind of stuff might have had whatever came from the desert that might have had uh, uh, leftover elements of the different uh, nerve gas or, or uh, uh, different kinds of things. Who knows uh, what happened? You know, we call the Gulf War uh, the most toxic war in history uh, because it, it had so many different toxins uh, that wow. uh, people were exposed to over there. And um, it's it's just unbelievable, like Les was saying at the end of the last segment, uh, the the amount of things that we were exposed to was horrible. Uh, and it's gotten a little better in this war, not not much better in the later part of, latter part of, the, of uh, these Gulf Wars. But uh, that's another distinction that uh, it may not be clear to some people is that Technically, the Gulf War is still going on. It's never stopped from 1990. Uh, but uh, we refer to the Persian Gulf War as that period in 1990 and 1991. And uh, what's going on now is Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom during Freedom and Operation New Dawn. And that's kind of the distinction they make is the post-9-11 and, and uh, the Persian Gulf War are really the distinctions that they make between the different periods. We're talking about, in this case, 700,000 troops that were exposed during the two Gulf Wars. And of those, uh, it's hard to find a, a firm statistic, but it appears as though it's between 250,000 and 300,000 troops are affected today or their subsequent generations are affected today by their exposure, as you said, to toxins, to an entirely different environment, to things that were not even created. For example, some of these, what we call now the burn pits, when you're talking about okay. the oil well fires, et cetera, we're talking about toxins that really don't exist in natural world. And when you apply other types of waste to these things, you are creating toxins that people don't even know how to study. 
So Les, this question is directed to you because I know you mentioned your child um, has, has medical issues and you mentioned also that you had friends who had serious things or who noticed upon return that their medical symptoms, I'll call them just their health symptoms, were different than normal before they had gone. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my my neighbor, uh, when he returned, it, uh, he was my neighbor. So he was our to him and him uh, his wife Marilyn. They had a child after he returned, um, and his child uh, Casey was born with a a face that was uh, one side was higher than the other. He was missing the child was missing his ear. Uh, the, the esophagus wasn't attached to his stomach. And these are, these are, they call them Gulf War babies back then. Life, Life Magazine did, a, did an article on all these babies that were born with these, these, uh, these odd things. Children being born with no arms, but they had their hands or their feet were attached to their bodies. There were, there were just other things. It's odd that you wouldn't, you wouldn't normally see. Um, so yeah, then my son was born with a, his cerebellum wasn't formed all the way. Mm. So he, so that caused uh, hydrocephalus, uh, some bleeding on the brain. We didn't know if he was going to live or die as for ten days of life. So it was, uh, it was pretty challenging being um, in Germany at that time. So yeah, there, there, these children, and not even that. Then you, you look at the spouses. We had there was reports back then too, and articles written about um, spouses when, when they'd come back home. Their the, the husband's semen was burning the insides of the of women. Mm. Uh, so it's just on these strange things that um, aren't uh, aren't studied or really that after that uh, Life magazine article, I hadn't seen anything else about the kids or the uh, or spouses, even spouses being um, uh, uh, researched. One of the things that Dave had talked about the vehicles that were being brought back. And if you think about that, these vehicles weren't decontaminated like they normally would be in a chemical environment like we were trained on. Mm. Uh, so if they weren't decontaminated, yeah, this makes a lot more sense for the people who didn't deploy. I mean, they got ready, they took the meds that were bad, and then they then vehicles came back, and they still had all these toxins on them because we, you know, if you, you know, just being honest, we know those vehicles weren't washed properly, even to come back the way they were. Right? So it, it's right. coming back, and, and then not being decontaminated because they there was no reporting, accurate reporting on these chemicals that were on the vehicle still. So maybe that's even a low number. We're talking 600 to 200,000 people. Just in, if you look at Germany alone, I mean, Seventh Corps alone had uh, a lot of people coming over. Then you're talking about the, all the soldiers that came out of uh, the United States and everywhere. So, and then you then you go back, and the vehicles then are being worked on by people back there that are being exposed. So this is a, you know a greater uh, number than than that. It's and these can be. And they didn't, you know, people don't even know they're being exposed to these toxins uh, because, they, uh, because they weren't uh, aware of the vehicles they're currently working on. So when do you suppose the government became aware that they had an issue? It hadn't been dealt with proactively, such as decontaminating the vehicles. This environment was not well known to them, but now suddenly it was. So upon learning that there are these symptoms that are affecting great numbers of people who had similar experiences, whether they deployed or didn't deploy. 
what do you feel the government response was then? And what do you feel would have made it a lot better in retrospect? Well, I, I just, it's like the, they put together the Gulf War registry. Okay, okay. so you, you figure that they're trying to get, they're trying to gather data to help, to help you medically. Um, but I, there hasn't been any, any follow-up after you go to the Gulf War, after you get registered, do they look at that data and go, okay, now we're, we've got to treat this because we've got a lot of people. I haven't seen that. I, I don't, I don't even know if they've accepted the fact of what, what everything is. I, or uh, Dave, maybe that's a better point of view with your research, but I haven't seen that as a veteran. Well, I don't think so. there is something that we should all know up front about the registries. Registries are used for a longitudinal study, meaning a study over a long period of time to track uh, symptoms and exposures and, and to see what the results are. It's what they did with Vietnam and Agent Orange. They're doing it now with the burn pit registries. Unfortunately, I believe there's very poor communication about the expectations of what will happen once you have had your Gulf War examination, if you choose to have one, and being part of the Gulf War registry. It doesn't necessarily make it into your medical records unless you take the time to make sure that it does. And this goes for the more recent ones like burn pit exposure as well. And I think that comes as a surprise to people because you think this is going to be part of something. And it will someday, but the reality is that all that data is gathered for a long period of time. In this case, you're already 10 years in before it is wow. then looked after. I don't know if you're aware of that, but I personally made those phone calls about the burn pits to try and find out what was the expectation, what's the next step, what's the protocol, and there wasn't a protocol to go on. If you have a good care team, it will be added to your medical records upon your insistence, and you can add your own records to theirs and ask that it be included, but it is not a regular thing. Were you all aware of that? You know, when... Uh when you told me that before, I was just shocked. I, I didn't know that it was just that. I thought it would go in and, you know, the, then the vets would get their care. I, I, w I was shocked when you told me that. I, I'm afraid this is where we're using logic in an illogical situation. But I do think it's just a, a, a very bad uh, disconnect between those who are wanting answers and feel that you're participating in something and very poor communication about what will be done with that. As you know, it took about 20 years or so for Agent Orange to come to light. So it, it is, unfortunately, you feel as though you've done something, but in many ways, you have really just become part of a research study of which, Dave, we can talk more about that after the break. But it is important to know what will and won't happen and that your medical care is still largely in your hands to get it in front of the VA. And that's a very important fact to remember. We are all responsible for making sure that things are included in our medical histories. And, and knowing that, at least, I hope helps some of our listeners know to stay on top of this. So we will talk more about the causes of GWI, Gulf War illness, the sarin exposure, oil well fires, and why some have it and some don't. We'll be back right after these short messages. You're listening to Military Network Radio. Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
This is Toginet, Cutting Edge Radio. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Many of us look forward to the holidays all year long. It is such a magnificent opportunity to get together with family and friends and decorate and give gifts and eat the most delicious food. But numerous people dread the holidays. As far as their weight, health, and exercise are concerned, they know they'll have so much temptation and chances to derail their healthy lifestyle. Many just resolve themselves into thinking that gaining weight over the holidays is a fact and there is no way to avoid it. But it doesn't have to be that way. I want you to embrace the holidays. Have a plan before you go to any dinner, party, or event and decide what you're going to eat and stick with it. Yes, there will be temptation, but you can overcome it. Stay with the plan and reap the benefits. You can contact us at fitnessminute at annettehammond.com. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with Dave Hatfield and Les Davis, both veterans of the Gulf Wars. Let's talk a little bit about the causes of Gulf War illness. We did mention the oil well fires, which I think is something today's vets are somewhat familiar with. They're probably less familiar with sarin exposure and some of the other toxins that were done. Uh, I'll direct that one to you, Dave. Can you talk about what sarin is and what the exposure means and why it's important? Well, sarin is a uh, nerve agent. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, aimed at uh, the neurological system and, and exposure. Uh, when it uh, comes in contact with the soldier's skin or through the respiratory system, uh, aims to basically start uh, causing the... Uh, uh, through the nervous system for the muscles to uh, uh, tense up and uh, and stop responding uh, to any signals from the brain. And uh, it therefore eventually stops respiration, uh, which uh, causes the soldier to die. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, can impact uh, just a short uh, exposure to sarin gas can... Uh, uh, can kill a soldier within just a, a short period of time. I say a soldier, but I mean a Marine or an airman mm-hmm. or anybody that's exposed sure. to it. Um, there were uh, multiple chemical alarms that went off during the Gulf War, uh, noted by the Marines and, and Army forces, but also by some of our Allied forces that were with us uh, uh, during the uh, initial stages of the war. And at times before uh, the the ground war actually kicked off, and uh, those were caused uh, partly by the uh, uh, Air Force bombings and different uh, uh, known chemical uh, warfare storage bunkers that the Iraqis had that we destroyed to keep the Iraqis from using uh, those chemical weapons against us, and. Uh, Later, uh, it was determined that the plumes of, of uh, the different uh, chemical smoke and, and all of that from those explosions actually drifted back over the U.S. forces because of the way mm-hmm. the winds were blowing and all of that and could very well have drifted and rained down over 
the U.S. and Allied forces, uh, and chemical alarms went off, and uh, they were told, "Oh, those are just that's just uh, faults with the equipment, or it's just a mistake, and don't worry about it. Turn those off." And the reports uh, of all of those alarms going off uh, at the local unit levels uh, somehow mysteriously disappeared uh, on their way back from the Gulf. Um, and so none of those ever showed up anywhere in the official reporting uh, uh, that went on. So uh, that was uh, the known exposure to mustard gas, or to sarin gas. Sarin, there were also right. some uh, reports of mustard gas and, and other kinds of uh, chemical exposures, but mustard and sarin were really the only two that uh, most of our folks knew about that were coming down. Um, I think you bring up a point that's very important is that while we were prepared militarily, it appears as though, and maybe this is an unfair statement, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it appears as though we weren't as well prepared to know about some of these types of chemical weapons. Um, There have been chemical weapons used in warfare forever. And we know that they are there in stockpiles. We know that they're there today. And they what frightens me is that they seem to be getting carried over borders. And, and you have to wonder about those who are handling and moving all of these things. Or you, you find that they've walked into a cache of old chemical weapons that have been seeping into the ground. Um, these all can cause long-term effects later on which just to go back to the registry for a moment, that's why it is important to participate in the Gulf War registry because that data will indeed be used over time, maybe not as quickly as people would like, but will be used over time to recognize the effects of what these uh, agents did to people. Now, some people have it and some don't. So, is there any explanation, or has there been in your knowledge, uh, I'll throw this one to you, Les, about what made a difference in terms of who has it and who does, doesn't have it? Well, there are a couple. Um, first, we were all exposed to different things. Uh, mm-hmm. I was on a frontline infantry soldier uh, being exposed to a lot of those uh, chemical uh, alarms and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had all the immunizations and took the, uh, what Les referred to earlier, the pyridostigmine bromide pills, which were an anti-nerve agent uh, pill that they gave us before the war. Um, it was an experimental drug that they, they gave us that uh, was... Uh, uh, supposed to help us in case we did get exposed to one of these nerve agents. Uh, really, Soman gas was the only thing that had ever been tried for, uh, which is a different, completely different nerve agent. Uh, but the exposure uh, to the oil well fires, the exposure to uh, different kinds of pesticides, permethrin is, was one of them, and uh, another type of uh, pesticides, a deep um was another one, uh, the exposure to the local food and, and different kinds of things, different uh, kinds of uh, bugs and, and stuff that was in the sand, 
the chemical uh, chemicals that were used in the paint, the camouflage paint on the vehicles, uh, and the different vaccines, the, the experimental vaccines for anthrax, for botulinum toxoid, for the plague, uh, and other things that were all experimental that uh, we didn't know anything about. So the chemical stuff was actually one thing that we, the, the troops anyway, we knew we were facing uh, a regime that had chemical weapons and what kinds of chemical weapons they had. We all had our uh, our Mop 4 protective gear and equipment. <clears throat> and it was one thing we really weren't very afraid of because we had all the protections for it. What we didn't know is that it was going to be our own uh, blowing up the sites ourselves that was going to put us at, at exposure risk. Uh, and then later at Comisia after the war, when we, they had us detonate these bunkers and blow the chemicals up and expose our own troops from the 82nd airborne, for example, uh, that when <coughs> people started getting sick and, and, uh, ill just for blowing up these things ourselves because the plume, came right back at us, uh, that was uh, probably the worst uh, of our exposures. And that's what we really weren't prepared for, is, is doing this damage to ourselves by giving ourselves the vaccines and ourselves the experimental medicine and blowing these chemical weapons up ourselves. And I think that's what we weren't prepared for, really. Wow. So, so Les, I'm, I'm wondering, when it comes to family members, what is the greatest concern that family members have? They, uh, are yeah, I didn't get the question. What's the greatest concern family members? Ty, I think your voice is cutting out a little bit. Uh, yeah, she's asking if, what are the greatest concerns of the family members? Oh, well, I, as, you know, my my concern, I think everybody would have concerns over their children or their spouses is, is their is their health are, you know, they were, you know, they're the unintended victims of what we were exposed to. They, you know, they weren't uh, they weren't supposed to be um, exposed to this like we were. Now, none of us were exposed to have supposed to be exposed to any of this, you know, that but they uh the consequences of those young children coming back, uh, you know, being born, you know, without the arms and legs or the disfigurement or the learning disability um, or the, you know, like my, like I said earlier, my son uh, was born with, you know, his cerebellum wasn't uh, totally formed. So some delays in memory of a lot of issues with memory and a lot of and some issues with uh, dexterity and all that, but it's, that's the unintended. That's my concern is what, what, what what assistance is there for them? What is what are we doing for them? And I don't I don't see that because it's not a big. There's not a too much of a big. I've never seen a study. I've never even heard of anything after that after that article. So my concern is, is with the kids, with with the spouses. Um, I am uh, very concerned about that. Why you know I, I have to with my own son. Uh, it was uh, quite a bit short to get him just through high school because of his memory. And I bet I'm not the only parent out there that look back and you know my son was born he was a born after the gulf war and maybe you can tie some issues together now with uh with maybe us talking today 
you know, in a, the, this is bringing up a point. Do you recall whether the Gulf War Registry asked about children and spouses and the effects on them? I don't. No. I don't believe it. I, I don't even think they're studying it. Well, I, I mean, I, I read the last report, which was the 10th and final congressionally mandated study of the medical literature, et cetera, and there was nothing about families in it, but I don't know enough to know the, if the Gulf War Registry asked questions. Uh, do you know that question, Dave? That answer, rather? No, they, they haven't asked anything. The, the VA has only, uh, I don't think they've touched anything on families or family members other than um, I think in one survey they asked some questions about uh, spouses and family members but it was very limited um, and other than that I don't think much at all well yeah in their defense the VA does really focus on the veteran themselves but I was just curious since there appeared to be the teratogenic the birth defects uh, or birth effects that are happening to the children born of Gulf vets. So what are the advocacy groups doing or not doing? And this we'll have to finish after the break. We have got a short while we can start this discussion though. What are advocacy groups doing? What are the typical VSOs doing? The big six um, or even the more recent ones? Do you feel like your voices are being heard? Either of you. Well, I know, I know that the the family members, the non-deployed uh, military folks, uh, they don't feel like they're being heard at all. Uh, and and to be honest, they probably aren't. Um, the uh, the big the big VSOs uh, pay very little attention uh, to the Gulf War vets. Period. There might be a statement every year, a one-liner in there. Uh, legislative priorities or something about the Gulf War, but it's just kind of a, a, something they have to put in there. And uh, when it comes to lobbying or pushing the VA to do anything about it, they don't really do much of anything. So. Okay, we're going to have to stop right there. We have a short break. We will continue this after the break. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll be right back. Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. The Woohoo Radio Network presents the Diva Download with Tracy and Tasha. If you think Diva is all about attitude and drama, think again. The Diva Download is the premier online radio program where girls of all Ages, shapes, sizes, and colors get together to redefine what it means to be a diva so that all girls can discover their inner diva and develop a healthy sense of self-worth and self-esteem. Being a true diva means you're diverse, involved. 
involved, value-driven, and active. That's today's diva. If you want to celebrate the girl in your life through education, encouragement, empowerment, and entertainment, join us every week on Tuesdays from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time and celebrate the essence of being a girl only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. offer wonderfully wild and wacky summer foods. From chicken fried bacon in Texas to Minnesota spaghetti and meatballs on a stick. There is something about dining at the fair that can make anyone an opsomaniac or a person who is driven to the point of madness by food. State fairs are famous for their loverwort or food with no nutritional value. The California State Fair boasts fried Krispy Kreme chicken sandwiches. That's fried chicken and Swiss cheese tucked into a Krispy Kreme donut served with a side of honey sauce. At the Iowa State Fair, you can enjoy a hot beef sundae. That's a big scoop of mashed potatoes over roast beef, covered with gravy, sprinkled with cheddar cheese, and garnished with a cherry tomato to look like a sundae. What's another word for messy food? Ma Wella. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion on a Gulf War retrospective and today. And uh, Les, you made a comment earlier that we've been, or I guess Dave made the comment, pardon me, about we've been at war in the Gulf for since 1990, for a very long time, which then begs the question, do vets from recent conflicts also also show symptoms of Gulf War illness? I'll direct that one to Les. I, I believe they do. I, if you look, um, even, even the VA has connected them, and that's, that's quite amazing in, in itself. <laughs> they have, uh, and it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not everything, so it, it, you can tell with some of the um, neurological things that, that the two sets of vets are, are uh, connecting. There's some musculoskeletal systems issues that are connected, uh, but you, you know, you're, you're, it, it just makes sense that they would be because you're, you're in the same area. You're in the mm-hmm. same fighting the same thing. I mean, more, this war has been more lately has been more uh, city in, internal, but it's, you're in the same area. So it makes sense that it, that it would. Um, so there are some same symptoms, you know, there, there's a lot more, of course, PTSD, common things uh, from the vets. But uh, when it comes to the neurological stuff, there are some similarities. I think that, I think that one that was the highest was the, uh, um, the muscle skeletal. I think that the high percentage of both, um, both set of veterans are, are that's, their, that's the highest one. Can I, can I go back to the VSO just for a second? Sure, and of course. Um, I think the, the 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 VSOs, the older VSOs. I'm not, I'm not talking about the new ones because they're they're a little better organized. The older VSOs, the the American Legions, the VFWs, the DAVs. Those, they, I think their their time has come. It is they they've got a chance because they're. And Dave was exactly right when they have that one liner about burn pits. Now, I used to work for AMVETS. They have that one line about burn pits pushing that legislative. You know, they're still they're still 
and they and they should be. They're still fighting getting Vietnam vets their um, their you know their benefits too, and the, as they should. But they've never they have never ever uh, been up to date with uh, you know what about the Grenada? What about this Gulf War? What about the Panamanian? So those VSOs have just gone now. Why the newer VSOs? They're more organized because they're more used to social media than even us Gulf War guys. And they was, you know, they're we're just not organized like they, they are now today. So I think if you're looking for those VSOs to do anything, I think you're looking at the wrong, wrong one. I think there should be some teaming with the newer VSOs to, you know, especially the IAVA, they're heavily legislative. And I know there's some conflict there, but when I talked to the, the founder uh, back when I was retiring, he was I thought he was more for the these this Gulf War. So there could be some uh, partnerships that could be developed um, with that. But you know, um, it's oh, important sorry. that you also mention the PTSD and the behavioral health issues because we're talking about the physical components, but we haven't even touched on the emotional, behavioral health, um, how you return, and then how your physical and emotional health are both affected. I believe you had a question. And I did. I had, so, oh, oh, go ahead. No, I was. I had students that, like I said, I work with student veterans, and you know, we had students that were. Uh, one particular, I'm uh, thinking of. Um, one night, I got a call. He had uh, not only killed himself, but he killed his wife. Mm. And, and he was just—he was emotional. It was. Uh, he was the Gulf War vet. You know, the wife. Um, you know, I think he had two to three. Uh, two to three deployments. Mm -hmm. It you're right. We haven't even touched the mental part of this. And it, it is that's just that could be Linda, that's probably two to three, four shows. <laughs> I, I believe it. I believe it because it is a common thread. And then when you add on to this sense of not understanding, not being listened to and, and little yeah. research being done, that would definitely affect behavioral health and how one feels about the service. So now, Ty, you had a question. Sorry. Yes, which kind of ties in. No, it's it's good. Does anything in the vets first bill that's recently passed does it help Gulf War veterans? There's one big aspect of the vets first bill I think that uh, really helps. Uh, the uh, the IAVA, in fact, pushed uh, some legislation early on to get uh, caregivers from. Uh, from people that were injured that were post 9 11 uh, military folks. They got the uh, post 9 11 uh, GI Bill and uh, those things, but the caregivers bill to get stipends for caregivers to help soldiers and, and other military folks who were injured. Uh, and, and that really helped the quality of life uh, for those folks and their families a lot. Uh, but it didn't include uh, veterans from from earlier than 9/11. So the Vets First Bill has some provisions in there to start moving that caregiver caregivers stipend back to uh, it starts with Vietnam uh, and pre-Vietnam era veterans, and then eventually to move up to cover uh, the rest of us uh, to bring us to parity with what the uh, post 9/11. Uh, veterans have, have received. So that's one big thing I think that will really help because a lot of, nine, uh, of Gulf War veterans are uh, 
uh, bed-bound and housebound uh, from all of their different uh, problems and, and having caregivers who are now uh, either not working or, or spending all their time taking care of their veteran uh, will be able to get some some of the same benefits in terms of financial support and the training and all that kind of stuff. So that's a big one, I know, from the Vets First Bill. It is, except that it has never been labeled a benefit. And so it is, in some cases, very subjectively applied. And the caregiver program has its own issues. Um, as you know, I work very closely with veteran caregiver and the more recent post-9-11 vets and their caregivers. But it is steps in the right direction, and we have to be grateful for those. I do know in the last Gulf War congressionally mandated report, so it's the 10th one, um, that was just published, there are no further reports required to be written. But is there ongoing research for Gulf War illness? Uh, is there the Institute of Medicine clinical trials going on? What is happening with uh, further research to discover the causal relationships? Because how else can you figure out new treatments if you don't know the root causes? Well, this research is really my... Uh... Uh, area of big interest, and, and the Institute of Medicine is not the be-all, end-all of research, thankfully. Mm -hmm. uh, the VA is not the be-all, end-all of research either, which uh, uh, even though they get the most money, they're not the, uh, uh, the last resort for research. There's a program called the CDMRP, the Congressionally Directed Medical Research Program that's run by the Department of the uh, of the Army, in fact, um, and they have a program within that called the Gulf War uh, Illness Research Program. And uh, I sit on panels most every year uh, that evaluate uh, research proposals that are submitted to this program uh, to do research of all different stripes, and they change them every year for what they're looking for, uh, for what the interest is in, the topics uh, whether they're new researchers or they're focused on older researchers or uh, programs in combination with uh, uh, different universities. And a lot of them actually come from VA uh, research centers. Uh, and we fund some uh, uh, remarkable uh, research uh, efforts that are out there. The problem Good. is that every year we have to go to Congress and beg for money and we usually get 20 million dollars and and that's a real testament to the folks who uh, write to congress go to congress testify before congress the folks from the veterans for common sense and the uh, uh national gulf war resource uh council that or committee that go for uh, uh to testify and and to uh lobby the congressional folks uh, to get that $20 million and the congressmen that stick their necks out and, and put forward a bill to get that $20 million every year. It's a challenge and a fight every year just to get that $20 million. But that's not enough money with all of these programs to fund the bigger clinical trials that VA has the money for and can get the money for if they wanted to. Okay. Um, so um, that's a real challenge for us. No, I, I understand. Les, if you had something to tell your fellow battle buddies about 
what is the takeaway message? If you haven't already reached out to a group, what would it be? Don't give up. Don't give up. Okay. There's a lot of guys that will uh, get so frustrated in the bureaucracy, bureaucracy of the VA or trying to get a medical claim paid for, or they're fighting for a benefit. Don't give up. VA will wear you out. You know that. Y'all know. But don't give up. Keep, keep you know, going in. Keep going back. It, it is, you, you've earned, you've earned that benefit. I, and I've talked to so many, whether it's, whether I was working with our student vets, whether I'm working with veterans, getting them hired at a job or, you know, just, or just talking to the vets with about anything. A lot of them just get so frustrated and they just give up. They should not give up. You know, they, they need to uh, work with one, one of the things that the VSOs do well is their national service officers. These are people who have been working the VA system for a very long time. They gather the medical records up and they help them help the vet puts in their claims. They do that extremely well. They probably do it better than anybody. That is that is the one person that you should always go to to uh, get everything organized and sent in. Some folks try to do this on their own or they you know got maybe have a friend. Go to these experts. And, and then try to do a reclaim or try to do your benefits again, but don't give up. That's everything. I, that is the biggest thing. Don't Excellent. give up. Excellent. I want to make sure we give our listeners some websites. The one is called 91, the number 91outcomes.com. And another is ngwrc.com. And there are multiple Facebook groups for family members, for Gulf War vets, for those interested in finding out more. And we are grateful to our guests this morning, Dr. Dave Hatfield and Les Davis, both fine Gulf War veterans who have shared a great deal with us today and could share a great deal more. Thank you so much for listening today. We will be back next Tuesday with more information of value to you. Thank you for listening to Military Network Radio. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance 